Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Last week, we discussed the psychology of false confessions, which can be broken down into three types, voluntary, coerced compliant, and coerced internalized. Dr. Allison Redlick, a distinguished university professor in the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society at George Mason University, revealed the different factors that put innocent people at risk for confessing to a crime they didn't commit. And though instances of false confessions have been recorded throughout history, it's easy to assume that these cases are far and few between. However, Mary Catlin, a graduate research assistant at George Mason University, says they're more common than many people would think. Still, it's difficult to quantify all cases of false confessions because it's nearly impossible to know the true number of wrongful convictions. Our best estimates of those numbers come from the National Registry of Exonerations, which is just a database that holds all known wrongful convictions that have happened in the U.S. since 1989. According to that database, at least, false confessions are involved in around 13% of all wrongful convictions. And surprisingly, that's not equal across types of crime. And so when we look at data collected by the Innocence Project, what they found is that false confessions among known exonerations are more common in homicide cases. And so in homicide cases where their innocence has been demonstrated through DNA evidence, we see that false confessions were a factor in 62% of those cases. Which means that the most serious crimes appear to have a higher risk of involving false confessions. And not only are innocent people losing years of their lives, but Catlin's recent article in the Wrongful Conviction Law Review shows that they tend to die sooner as well. So what I did is I went through more than 2,600 known wrongful convictions that existed at the time we did this study, and I identified every exoneree who had passed as of, I believe it was June of 2020. And so then I went to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, and I just looked at their estimates for how many people in the United States generally are expected to pass away each year. And what we found was that almost six times as many exonerees have passed than what the CDC would predict. Which is based on factors like race and the year a person was born. And then not only that, but when we compared how old our exonerees were at the time of their death to the CDC estimates for life expectancy, we found that the exonerees died over 13 years earlier than expected. And that's even after we accounted for their time in prison, which we know can negatively impact one's lifespan. Catlin and Redlick believe this to be one of the first papers to study the link between wrongful convictions and lifespan. So the reason behind these early deaths is still unknown. 
for the exonerees whose cause of death we were able to find, what we see is it is a lot of health conditions, which follows the general trend in the U.S. Things like heart disease kill a lot of people in the U.S. What's unclear for these exonerees, though, is would they have always been a victim of whatever that health condition was? So some exonerees or their families have talked about how because of the prison conditions, they developed X, Y, or Z, or maybe they were always going to be predisposed to something like cancer, but because they were in prison, they couldn't get the treatment they needed for that. They couldn't identify it as soon as they might have been able to if they were not incarcerated. And those kinds of things, while entirely plausible, are incredibly hard to tease out when we're doing this type of research. But with this emerging research and the threat of decades spent in prison, why do people confess to crimes they didn't do? This phenomenon of false confessions is just so hard for people to understand. And they think about, I would never confess to a crime I didn't commit. I certainly would never confess to a murder I didn't commit. But largely through this accusatorial interrogation process, it is much more common than we think it is. So in an effort to reduce the number of false confessions and wrongful convictions, Redlick and Catlin think the current interrogation methods need to be updated. One change that started to become more and more common is having law enforcement record all interrogations from start to finish. Recording not only protects the suspect who, in a way that like we might be able to identify a false confession before it spirals into a wrongful conviction, but recording can also protect the police officers who are conducting the interviews from potentially convicting an innocent person and from civil suits down the road. And the other thing that research has shown is that recording interviews does not seem to impact people's willingness to talk. So there's little to no downside to recording interviews and interrogations. Another aspect to consider is how law enforcement agents approach an interview. While the accusatory method is mainly used in the U.S. and Canada, the U.K. offers an alternative approach that views an interrogation as a means to get more information about a case instead of a confession. And that type of interviewing is called information gathering because it is information the officer is seeking, not a confession. And so you would use the same interviewing methods with a suspect, but also a victim or a witness to the crime, because guilt is not a prerequisite for talking to someone. Unlike those accusatorial interviews, you're simply looking for as much information as you can get. Catlin, Redlick, and other researchers recently compared these different interviewing techniques, specifically looking at confession rates. And what we found is that the information gathering approaches outperform accusatorial ones in both senses. And what I mean by that is not only did the information gathering approaches decrease the number of false confessions, but it increased the number of true confessions because we don't want to hinder police's ability to identify guilty individuals. So we really want to keep the number of true confessions high while we decrease the risk of false confessions. And the information gathering approaches seem to do that. And though we have research that supports a change in interrogation tactics, how do we get law enforcement to make the shift? Some of it is you need buy-in from law enforcement. So some of it is connecting researchers to those practitioners and helping show them that making this change will actually make their job easier, make them more effective at their job. So bridging that gap between researchers and practitioners is an important step to getting their buy-in. 
Unfortunately, one main hurdle to this progress is the way our criminal justice system is organized. We have a very fragmented criminal justice system. It's not just by the states, but I think we have over 18,000 different law enforcement agencies. So where the United Kingdom was able to institute this mandatory information gathering model in direct response to false confessions, I'll add, that is not something that's always feasible in the United States because there's just so much discretion and so many individual different law enforcement agencies. But hopefully, as researchers like Redlick and Catlin continue to focus on this area of study, we'll be able to reduce the number of people wrongly convicted and instead catch the true perpetrators. I think it's important to point out that there have been so many positive developments in the United States because the innocence movement and that we, you know, the recognition that we are convicting innocent persons. So the fact that 25 states now record interrogations in some form or another is in a very positive development because I think before the movement, there were maybe two states, Minnesota and Alaska. And, you know, on the one hand, we still have a ways to go, but on the other hand, policy is moving forward. You can find more information about Dr. Allison Redlick, Mary Catlin, and all of our guests on our website, radiohealthjournal.org. For more behind the scenes, follow Radio Health Journal on Facebook, Instagram, and X. Our writer-producer is Kristen Farah. Our production manager is Jason Dickey. I'm Greg Johnson. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. We know that heart disease extends well beyond the heart, so I just love it when therapies and treatments address the whole person. How acupuncture therapy could help patients recover from open heart surgery. Then, everything you never knew about schizophrenia. Everyone here who's listening can be made psychotic, whether you're isolated for three months in a dark hole or you're giving psychotomimetic drugs. All that and more on Radio Health Journal. I'm Elizabeth Westfield, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. Alcohol, yeast dough, you know, if you're making cookies with your kids and you got a chow hound, don't let him eat the raw dough. We cover some of the definite no-nos for pets. Then... I have a list of 45 ingredients, and 41 of those were functionally extinct. Did the fruits and vegetables of our ancestors actually taste better? These food historians have no doubt. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. And that's Radio Health Journal for this week. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more. And check Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify for a library of past programs. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and information about our guests at RadioHealthJournal.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.